So here we are again, a Ripple's virtual village green for the forgotten 500,000 blend, where we all get the chance to catch up on the live stream that went out on Friday. So many of you, hundreds and hundreds, are tuning in to keep up, catch up with the campaign and developments in science and research each week. And we want to say how amazing it is that we have this incredible cohort of patients, carers, scientists, clinicians and interested humans who are just in lockstep with us over the aim to get Evershell rolled out to those who need it the most. This week on social media, there was quite a buzz. Two reasons for that. Firstly, would Twitter still be around for us to live stream from in the Twitter spaces? And more importantly, for obvious reasons, a trial was announced that would combine Evershield and vaccinations to see how that worked for immunocompromised patients. I'm about to play you the unvarnished, unedited session right now with a plea to share it with everyone and anyone who might be interested or indeed influential. And by the way, stand by for some breathtaking babbling from yours truly, your host. And if you can get past that, there's some great information from our expert panel. Speaking of which, over to you, Dr. Leonard Lee, to get us off and running. Over to you, Claire. Hello, welcome back to our Friday afternoon virtual Village Green uh, in conjunction with Ripple's podcast. I'm not sure we're going to have Twitter <laughs> forever. We hope we do. Uh, all sorts of shenanigans are going on across the pond. But if we can't do this in particular on Twitter Spaces platform, we will find another way to do that. I'm just asking you all to stick with us and uh, divert your interest maybe to Facebook because the Evershell UK people have very kindly got a page there. And in the first instance, that would be a great place to keep in contact with us so that we can resume normal service as soon as possible. Fingers crossed, nothing awful happens and Twitter sorts itself out. But anyway, it's great to have you with us this afternoon. Um, I'm your host, Claire English, as usual, formerly of the BBC, and I'm only here because of Dr. Leonard Lee, who got me interested in the forgotten 500,000 in the first place. Now, we put out these virtual events to really have a conversation with you to draw the community together and get patients, clinicians and scientists all talking and sometimes venting and strategizing about how to keep the boil going on the campaign to get Evershield free in the NHS. Now, obviously, we're grateful we can get uh, access to Evershield at all. Yes, some people can pay. This can pay just now. Maybe they won't be able to pay in the future. Some sadly cannot afford that cost at any time. So when a trial comes along and Evershell's part of that mix, well, there's huge interest. That must be the understatement of the century. I've seen an awful lot on Twitter. I'm sure it's all over social media, a buzz. Uh, we have the news today. Um, of course, that you, you can basically, I'm babbling now. Basically today, this is your chance to ask questions about that trial, eligibility, things like that to one of the guys, in fact, the top guy who is driving it all. He'll give you all the details that you need to do. And if we don't know the answers to it, we'll just put our hands up and say, we don't know the answers to it. Before we meet him and get to the bottom of all that, and there will be some questions that maybe we can't answer, but we'll do our best to get to as many as we can. I think we should run through our panel for this week and stop me babbling for five seconds, which is always a good thing. Okay, we're gonna start off with Dr. Leonard. Introduce yourself again. Hi, Claire. I'm an academic medical oncologist from Oxford University. It's great to be here again. Thanks for inviting me back. Lovely. I'm going down my little uh, gallery here and Patrick. Hi, I'm Patrick Cook. I'm a leukemia patient 
sort of um, 20 years, uh, very interested in all about Evisheld and uh, uh, I should be getting my uh, Evisheld dose uh, privately, of course, uh, next week. Okay, Nicola. I'm Nicola Brigden, Evisheld for the UK, um, one of the leads with Mark and Martin. Um, I'm here because my husband has blood cancer um, and I'm fighting for it for everybody else. You know, Evisheld, my husband's had it a couple of weeks ago, um, but everybody needs it. And we'll go to Mark Oakley next. Hi, uh, Mark Oakley, also um, from Evisheld UK, fighting with Nicola. Um, chronic sufferer from sarcoidosis for 11 years now, and I managed to get a dose um, about three weeks ago of Evisheld. Um, and fighting as loudly as possibly we can to get it for everybody else. You are indeed. You're a wee bit crackly, and I think, is that cat still on your lap? <laughs> we'll do what we can. Okay, and last but by no means least, we have another Mark. Mark, can you introduce yourself, please? Um, so my name's Dr. Mark Tyson. I'm a consultant oncologist. I actually work with Leonard at the Churchill Hospital, and I, um, I actually work, my, I did my, my research interest is in vaccines, um, and that spilled out into COVID uh, during the pandemic. And I've been working with uh, Professor Adrian Hill um, and various colleagues at the Churchill um, and at the Jenna on um, developing uh, therapies that can prevent COVID. And um, so my essentially the reason why I'm here is because I'm leading the uh, rapid protection study. And uh, that's going to be evaluating um, Evershield, its use in combination with uh, vaccines in patients who really remain very, very vulnerable to COVID despite repeated vaccination. Right, so this is going to be very, very interesting. Everybody listening here uh, knows they've got the main man here now. So this is a phase two clinical trial. Explain what that involves, if you could. And it's for civilians like me and for people that are maybe carers of patients. So I think I'll, I think we'll just talk through the different phases of clinical trials. So I think phase one is really um, drug which has not been given to people before. Um, so in other words, um, if you like the guinea pig, guinea pig stage, if you like, where you have a drug which has passed animal toxicities and goes into people. Phase two is where you've got combinations of drugs which are known to be usually effective or safe or likely to be, and they're combined together. And phase three is what we call registration studies. So the reason why our studies are phase two is because we're combining Evershield with a vaccine, uh, and that hasn't been done before in a clinical trial, although clearly people who've had Evershield will also have had vaccines and vice versa. That's quite interesting. Why was that decision made to have that combination this time? Um, well, it's, I, I think the first thing is when we, when we sort of developed a concept, it wasn't really um, Evershell was a new molecule. It wasn't sure whether it would work or not. Um, and in the world of cancer medicine, where I'm from, combining two drugs together is usually better than one. And what's become really interesting is the fact that whenever Shell was developed and the strains of virus that it was developed against COVID was really the original strain of COVID, the sort of Wuhan strain, if you like. And when the, the virus, there were two antibodies in there and they're very good at neutralizing that strain. But as time has gone on, as everyone's aware, we've got new variants and the Omicron uh, variant and subvariants in the lineage and have a very dominant degree of immune escape. And what's really interesting is um, with the new vaccines and everybody who goes into rapid protection will get a bivalent vaccine. Um, so in other words, one of the new Omicron vaccines. What we're hoping is that there will be a synergistic effect where you have the Evershield and then vaccination may be able to sort of fill in the immunological gaps, if you like, perhaps making immunity better than it would be without that. What is it that you and your colleagues are working in this? And we'll talk about where these locations are, but what is it that you're hoping to prove or try to find out with this trial? 
Well, we'd like to know whether vaccination adds anything to the effects of Evershield in, in the current in the current sort of situation we're in. Now, that's we're not doing an efficacy study, so this is like we're not doing any kind of um, give. Some people will get Evershield, some people won't, and see whether there's a difference between infection rates or anything like that. We're looking for immunological advantages, as to seen in the lab and in viral neutralization as well. So our endpoints are translational in that regard. Our other main endpoint is actually to do with drug levels, um, because we want to know how what the drug levels change also with time. And that gives an indication of protection as well. And that's called uh, PK, if you like, pharmacokinetics. Not very exciting if you're uh, a patient, um, but very exciting from uh, a drug company point of view and from a regulatory point of view, because you want to know the degree of protection and how that changes. And there are some groups, particularly dialysis patients, for example, and other groups, which that's quite relevant in. Okay, we'll talk about who's eligible and who's exempt in a moment, but tell us how it's going to work, uh, what's involved in and how many sites, how many trips, the sort of nuts and bolts of it, Mark. Um, so the way it works is we've got sort of uh, four cohorts. That, um, we've got, first of all, we've got a cancer cohort, and the way we've defined who's got cancer is anyone who's having um, systemic treatment, and that's, say, a, a chemotherapy or a target agent um, for the treatment of cancer. That's in the early or advanced cancer setting. Um, and there's a cohort of those groups of patients who are more vulnerable to COVID that we'll be recruiting. There's also a group of patients who've got hematological conditions as well. Um, and these are people on active treatment or who've had, say, bone marrow transplants, other very significant changes. Then there's another cohort, which is essentially, uh, which is sort of patients with transplants. Um, so if you're on, if you've had a transplant, say, for example, a kidney or a liver transplant, um, or you've got hepatic disease, this is another group that's very vulnerable. We've also got a group of patients who've got significant autoimmunity or inflammatory diseases, which are maintained on long-term immunosuppression, who are also more vulnerable. So we've chosen these groups based around pre-identified uh, groups. So, for example, from the UK Octave study, which, an uh, Octave Duo study, which really pave the way for identifying which groups of patients may not have responded to vaccines to allow us to target the Evershield to these uh, key populations, which are of interest, um, which are of significant interest, because ultimately we want to make sure everyone, um, if you haven't got a working immune system, can get the benefits of the protection that Evershield offers. And you've got sites, uh, but they're, they're kind of clustered, the sites you've got. Talk us through which ones they are and why the thinking there. So I think there's, a, there's, first of all, there's a number of, there's a, first of all, the, one of the main sites is the site at Oxford. That's obviously where I'm based and where the Jenner's based. And that's where we're going to be recruiting 80, 80 people to have sort of more an in-depth immunological analysis there. And we've also got a site down at the Royal Marsden in Sutton. Um, that's a major cancer hospital there. Um, we have a site up in, in Cardiff, which is where the clinical trials unit is based. Uh, and we have a site based up at um, the Clatterbridge Hospital up in Liverpool, which is where another one of our uh, collaborators is based um, and then we went out looking for other sites around the UK and Northampton General which is, is quite close to Oxford actually was available um, and able to run the study. One of the things we came up against actually when we um, when we, we were opening the study is we come up against a sort of essentially a lot of sites have done a lot of COVID research and they've prioritize that extensively over everything else and when the rapid protection study came along there there was various competitions so it wasn't um it wasn't a case that everyone could run the study in fact some of our preferred sites couldn't do that so we've essentially chosen sites based around where our collaborators are based um, and then where we had availability and that's because that ultimately rapid protection is but one study and a lot much much wider group of studies which is ongoing presently 
Yeah, I'm glad you, you've clarified a bit there, but um, I'm just, you basically, well, put it this way, there are a lot of people that will be saying, but why not my part of the world? You've kind of explained it, but for example, nobody in Scotland, nobody in Northern Ireland, nobody in the North of England. So I think there's there's various logistical considerations, and I think we we actually did we actually did try to go to Scotland for the trials unit. So um, with only five sites, with only five sites available, so we're planning to run the centre study on five or six sites. Unfortunately, there's going to inevitably going to be um, we can't get everywhere. So unfortunately, we haven't gone down to the south coast, for example, southwest or anything like that. So we we've, we've had to choose sites based around first of all where the investigators are. So the investigators are in Cardiff, the investigators are in um, in Oxford. We've also chosen sites based around those sites that actually replied to us with interest because the study was advertised when we, we did site selection. It went out nationally across the whole of the UK. It wasn't, we didn't, um, we didn't just say, oh, it's going to be here. It was a national search for sites. And that that's one of the things about running a trial. You, you would hope that all studies would be able to go everywhere. But the reality is, is that you know, the UK has actually done a lot of COVID research. So we were we were one study. I know we turned out to be very important at this particular juncture, but we were just one study out of many that was ongoing and, and running around the UK at the moment. Can I ask you, and again, this has come up in some Twitter questions and things, if you don't live in the geographical area of where the sites are, can you be referred to be part of it? Yes, you can. So I think all, all the individual, the list of the PIs is on the Rapid Protection website, which is um, through the University of Cardiff. So if you search for that in Google, um, or you can have a look on Twitter, probably on Leonard's feed, you'll find that there. Um, and you, all you need to do is you just need to be referred in by your medical pr practitioner to do that. So just be a short letter from your GP um, confirming you know, what's wrong with you. And then the individual the primary investigator PI will have a look and the team will have a look and then they'll decide. It's important to note that the main requirements for taking part aren't that you live next door to the hospital, it's just that you're able to comply with the study protocol. So in other words... That as well, because there's quite a lot that you've got to, you know, meet as yeah. yeah, it's interesting. So I'm looking at Fragile UK and just saying that are people in the Scottish NHS system allowed to travel to the trial centres to join the study? And uh, also, um, I think there's been a problem with some people trying to access getting the referral through, and they're confused on the website about who exactly to direct that referral to, because they don't want to be swishing around in a system and lose the opportunity, because let's be honest, this is what, 350 people, Mark? It's not huge amount. So I think we just have to look at the website and the referral needs to go to the, the, the PI, the primary investigator who's leading the study at individual sites. So that's who it goes to. Who is that person, by the way? So it's um, in Oxford, it's um, Dr. Paula Sassoni. That's that's already on there. She's already received quite a lot of emails uh, in Cardiff. That's Keith Wilson um, in, in the Royal Marsden Hospital, it's Charlotte Fribbons. Uh, and the PI in, uh, actually, I don't know the name off the top of my head, but the PI in Northampton, so I'm sorry about that. And um, the PI, I think, is Christian Ottersmeyer in Liverpool. So that information is on the study website, and you can contact the trials team in Cardiff. And if they're not sure, we will direct you. And we are receiving emails directly from patients about that. You're doing a great job, but you're, you're carrying this yourself, doing all this uh, work for us and telling us all this information. And I'm sorry that we're going so heavy on you. I don't know if anyone else wants to jump in at this point. Sorry, yet. don't worry. I'm <laughs> used to it. <laughs> Very popular this week. I don't know why, but anyway, Leonard. <laughs> I just want to say to everyone out there that Mark's one of my mentors, one of the smartest guys I've ever met. He's a fantastic doctor. And actually, 
these work around the clock to deliver us for the UK, actually. A single-handed doctor working in the office, having all these meetings in the background, trying to set up nurses and sites and actually doing what the government could have been doing. Mark's been doing that from a trials perspective, and he's got 350 um, people who can be onto his study. So I think it is actually quite amazing to get to cover that amount of the country um, at that many sites. It's, it's great to, to pull Wales into. Um, so that's what I was going to say, Claire. Let's get Leonard, it's very much a team effort. I must stress that. And I think there's been a lot of people have been involved um, and from actually also from from UK investigators, the, the trials unit and AstraZeneca have been very supportive of this. So it's been a real team effort. So I, I would admit to instigating the whole thing. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, let's just uh, look. Mark's leaning in. Mark, well, I mean, this is exciting, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I, I just want to. Um probably just clarify something if I can via Mark, just not this, everybody that applies for this ends up getting a, a dose of Evershed, don't they? You, you're not, look, this isn't a trial where half will get a placebo and half won't, it's, right. it's the whole gamut, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Just in case people couldn't make that out, it, you know, everybody gets Evershed. Mark, sorry, it's really crackly, I don't know what's going on today. Usually your sound quality is fantastic, but today not. Anyway, Mark T, can you clarify for Mark O what that situation is? Yes, so essentially there's no, everybody in the study gets the Evershield. There isn't any kind of placebo or anything like that. We are, there is a randomization involved. So what that means is it's allocation of treatment by chance. That randomization is actually due to the vaccination that patients will receive 28 days later. And the two, uh, the two vaccinations in there is the, the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine. Both of these are bivalent vaccines. So in other words, they protect both against the original strain of COVID and one of the strains of the um, Omicron vaccine. So essentially everybody gets that. And the main thing that will be different is some people will get Moderna and some people will get Pfizer. And we don't have any, um, you obviously know what you get. Um, we, we also recognize that a lot of people have had a lot of doses of vaccines already. Um, so this will be repeated vaccination. When we set the study up, we weren't expecting people to be in their fifth dose or coming up to six doses, but that's how it's gone. Um, well, can I thing... jump in there and ask you something? Just as you mentioned vaccines, what if you've never had vaccine? Does that... So unfortunately, we're only taking people who've actually complied with standard of care, um, standard of care therapy. So if you haven't had a COVID vaccine before, you won't be eligible, unfortunately. So okay. we, really, we really need people, unfortunately, who've, who've actually been able to have standard vaccines. OK, well, let's talk then a little bit more about who is eligible and who's exempt. So let's start with the bad news. Who's exempt? You've just mentioned one group. So so essentially, if you haven't had a COVID vaccine before, we, we can't unfortunately can't go in. You have to be in one of the four groups okay, that we've specified. So you either have to have beyond treatment for some systemic treatment for cancer. You have to have a hematological condition and a variety or be on a variety of different other treatments. If you're not sure, the best thing to do is to speak to your doctor about it. Um, you also have to have, you know, either you have a transplant or be immunosuppressed on dialysis or have significant autoimmunity. The best person to check this for you, if you're not, is really actually your, your physician. And you can have a talk to the study team as well. Regrettably, there are, there are some patients who are immunosuppressed that, for example, people who've got primary immunodeficiency, which we haven't been able to include in the study, and people have also got immunodeficiency related to viruses like HIV that we haven't been able to include in the study. So we haven't been able to put everybody in that we would like, but that's unfortunately the nature of running clinical trials is you, we haven't, you know, we can't, we couldn't do a thousand patient study. Our limit was 350. So we did have to focus it down to a few key groups. Mm. And right, the good news, who is eligible then? 
So if you're one of the in one of the four groups, which we've discussed before, then and you're on active treatments or various, you are potentially suitable. <clears throat> and again, the way trial eligibility works is, is that um, once we've got some basic information about you, the study team at the individual centre will contact you, they'll review your medical records, and then a decision about eligibility will be made. And, and one of the really hard things about trial eligibility is although trial eligibility is, um, we try to make it as broad as possible, so not too specific, there will be people who unfortunately fall outside of that who won't be eligible. And unfortunately, there isn't, you know, there isn't a grey area. Any significant queries will come through to me anyway, but we do have to sort of follow that criteria that we pre-specified. But they so, are broad, okay, yeah. and it's important to note we try to catch as many people as possible um, within, the, within the study. I, I'm just going to ask the, the obvious question, is there any chance of extending the study or is it too late to do that now? Um, so that that depends. OK, and I think the um, it, it is an adaptive study. So um, in sometimes in clinical trials, what you have is you have a fixed you have a fixed population and you have to stick with a design. Um, because if you mess with it, if you like, the 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 outcome of the study is is changed and you, you basically like move the goalpost in this study here. We've specifically planned for adaption. So if there's one particular cohort that um, particularly um, we think needs further study, and that will be determined not within a few months, but slightly later, then um, we will uh, we will extend that in the, extend that cohort. So there is plans to extend the study, but this isn't one of those ones where I can go, yep, I'd love to take another 750. And there are, there are a couple of practical reasons. The first is logistically, that is difficult for individual trial centres to handle. And secondly, we have a budget, which unfortunately, although it is generous from AstraZeneca, is fixed. Um, so we can't just sort of say, crank up the numbers and have some more. It's unfortunately that that is the limit. Okay. Got, I'm just looking at uh, the chat as well. Helen L is asking, how long will recruitment take? And is it the same time frame for each hospital? Because I think Helen's interested in the Royal Marsden. So the Royal Marsden have yet to open recruitment yet. So I think the um, thing to do is to contact the study team directly. So at the moment, I, I don't know how long recruitment is actually going to take because we're in a... Um, I originally thought um, at the beginning of the year in March, when we, we got the sort of, you know, we were getting ready to go, I thought, look, and the results came out, I thought, look, everyone had a deal. I thought, well, there'll be no one to recruit because everyone would have had it. And that unfortunately hasn't taken place. So, it, so in terms of the speed of recruitment, that will depend on part on logistics, because putting somebody into a study isn't the same as, say, going to a regular clinic. You have to have a study visit and then you have to come back. You have to, your eligibility has to be checked. Then you have to come back um, and another visit to have your injections and to start the study protocol. So I think recruitment is going to take about three months. However, it will be very much dependent on what the interest is and how fast the sites can, can deliver the patients. Is it first um, come, first serve, basically? It's just like everybody's going to sledge in here. I mean, look, I... It, <laughs> I can't think of any other way of doing it. And un unfortunately, yeah. unfortunately, the, the sites will receive referrals and it will be down to the individual PIs. However we do it, there'll be some people who will be very deserving. We want to take part. They just won't be able to do that. And that's really going to be really, really hard, particularly mm -hmm. when we know that, you know, the drugs available in other ways, but it, it, people have to pay for it. And that is very, very difficult. Yeah. Another question here, uh, Leslie Bedford, I think you've more or less covered it, but let's just make sure. Can you self-refer or does it have to be via GP or, or a consultant? I think you've said. So it, we, we really do need a, a short medical letter from your, your consultant. So look, we, we just need something. It doesn't have to be very much, but we do need something really. Um, 
about that because otherwise all that will happen is that we will end up we will end up asking for that information from those relevant people because although we trust it, we will trust the patients we also need to have that information provided medically as well so it's much better off that you're referred in by your gp or by your specialist and 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 don't forget these referrals can come quite quickly so they can be sent electronically so it's not that we're waiting for a letter to arrive in the post leonard did you want to jump in should i mark should i Mark Tesla, should I put the the PI names up because um, so people know where the direct letters are? Yes, I think if you can, if you put the names up, that will be fine. Yeah, fantastic. Um, while we're on the subject of, you know, this is a, a long term commitment, isn't it, Mark? Because if you get onto the trial, um, this is not this is quite a process to go through. So, can you talk us through what that would involve? So I think whenever when everyone has any kind of investigation or medical product, particularly when it's been combined with something that hasn't been done before, then there are various things that we need to collect. So if you were to have Evershield in standard of care, you turn up, the doctor or nurse would go, are you suitable? You'd have the injection and you'd leave and no one would take any notice of you, you just go home. If you were poorly, you rang your GP or something. In a trial setting, we require you to come back. Okay, so you'll need to come back at day one, day 28, three months, six months, um, nine months and a year. And there are other, there's other touch points in there as well, including various swabs and various things. So it is a commitment and we would need something from the individual trial participants, which is that you come back, you share your information with us medically, we take surveys, we find out how you are, um, that kind of thing. So it is a commitment in terms of time. And that's important for people to realize that it, this isn't a case of have, go up, have your jab and then go home. We do need to learn something from you in return. Um, so that being said, um, if you um, if you are approached about the study, you'll be sent a decent an information sheet called the patient information sheet to read. And that details all the extra visits that you would need to do, what's involved, the additional blood tests and what's required. And even if you want to sign up, you have to read the information sheet before signing up. And with that, that is mandatory for all clinical trials because you need to have a kind of cooling off period. No matter how much you want to take part, and we want you to take part, you have to have a cooling off period of at least 24 hours at home before making your decision. What about something like tra travel expenses and travel? Is there anything built in to help? Yes, yes there is, yeah, there Good. is, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so it's not entirely down to you if you've got to travel hundreds of miles and you've given that commitment that you will travel there. Um, so I think that will be down to the individual centre teams. I think when we, we probably aren't going to be paying for taxis from Scotland to, down to London. Oh, but I think look, um, <laughs> we'll do our best. Okay, and there is a there is a there is there is help for travel expenses. Yeah. That's good to know. So let me just run through these in case uh, you can't see it on your screen. Churchill Hospital is Dr. Paola Ciccone. Uh, Royal Marsden is Dr. Charlotte Fribbins. Uh, Northampton General is Dr. Jane Parker. Cardiff and Vale is Dr. Keith Wilson. And Clatterbridge Cancer Centre, Professor Christian Ottensmeyer. I hope I've got that right. There are some other questions on the chat. If Leonard can let me see the screen again, I can jump in because there was one I think about, yeah, somebody picking up again, I think it might be Helen again, saying there seems to be at least seven visits necessary over the course of the trial. What if attendance had to be delayed for reasons of ill health for any particular visit? What would happen then, Mark? So we, so essentially, we, we can't expect people to turn up if they're poorly. Okay, so essentially, when, when we start out the process of going on to protocol, everybody has to be happy that they're going to be able to comply with the protocol. Now, we're not saying that we're going to drag you out of bed and demand you come, but you, you've got to be able to sort of at least say it's reasonable to come and to have your visits. But if you're poorly for whatever reason, let's say you got COVID, for example, we would then record that and then we'd invite you back to have a sort of a, to basically... 
um, to repeat the to get the information that's needed so the blood test and things a little bit later. Um, but this is about when you're when you're when anyone's assessed for a clinical trial for anything, um, we have a look at the you have a look at what's required, and and then you say, well, look, is this really practical for me to do? Okay, so. It, and that's that's what's really important. Is it really practical? All right. And the investigators will also assess that as well, because we need to make sure that we're not asking things that people can't realistically do or that aren't right for them. Fair enough. Uh, another eligibility one from Julie McEnn. She says, can you enroll? I don't know if you've mentioned this already, Mark, but forgive me if I'm repeating it. Can you enroll for the trial if currently on chemotherapy? Yes, you can. So, right. yeah. So essentially, you have to be within 28 days of being on chemo. So. It, and the reason that's in there is to say, look, if you're, that's normally the maximum spacing between individual treatments. And I've, I've left it very broad. Okay. So uh, I've left it very broad. Um, it's important to note that quite a lot of people on chemotherapy won't actually be that vulnerable to coronavirus. So it isn't the, the assumptions were if you're on chemo that you were very immunosuppressed, but there are degrees of immunosuppression, which are quite variable. So for example, women who are on treatment for early breast cancer actually are quite well protected against COVID. However, there are some groups, for example, who are having chemotherapy with radiotherapy and other variations on that intensive forms of treatment which are much more vulnerable. So it's worthwhile having a chat with your particular, your specialists themselves to say, look, you know what, what's my actual risk and how poorly am I going to be, all right, if I got COVID? Because, um, they will know and have a feel for what's been happening to their patients in the clinic. Yeah, I'm just going to say to people, if you want to get some more questions into this lovely Leonard, my assistant here, he's basically typing like a lunatic, trying to get all these questions in and get, get them sorted. So please do send them in. It's really great to have Mark Tuttle here to, to answer those questions. Let me bounce back to maybe Patrick to give us a bit of a comment on what you've heard so far, Patrick, as a patient. I, I, I think it's a, it's a wonderful opportunity um, for people, not as geographically um, complete as one would have, would have hoped, but um, that's always uh, um, going to be a difficult difficulty. So I, I, yeah, I think it's, it's absolutely great. Um, I, it, it was never going to be an opportunity for me, even, um, even um, before I uh, did my, my private one, because uh, I'm on a um, separate clinical trial and I was advised not to be, not to become part of it, but um, wonderful idea. Yep. And uh, Nicola and Mark, Nicola first. I think it's a great opportunity. Um, we know from the group there's so many desperate people um, who want to go and live their lives again. So you know, if we can get 350 people with Evershield, it, it will make a difference. Mark, Mark Oakley. Um, I I think it's fantastic. Um, and, you know, people like Mark doing what they're doing, it makes a difference immediately and in the long term. And, you know, you, you've got to take your hats off to him. And, you know, what he was saying about the commitment from the patients, I think if you put it into perspective for what you're getting from it, um, not just a financial thing, but, you know, the, the protection it, it gives you, I don't think even if you've got a travel distance, it's, it's a price well worth paying. It really is. Leonard. Um, I think um, I'll probably just echo one of the points there that um, Mark Tuttle will probably also allude to is that we're very thankful for the patients who are taking part because they are advancing scientific knowledge in this space about 
immunology and and how people respond to Evisheld and will help scientific development in terms of the evolution of the product of of protection basically um so i guess in advance for those 350 who put themselves forward thank you because it's a bit of visits but you are really helping in this space too so it does go both ways in this case and that's a win-win situation yeah um there's a question here i don't know mark tuttle if you can um answer this as well what are the implications of the nice guidance on withdrawing a range of covid treatments please from cheshire dog lady hello cheshire dog lady um I don't think there, are, from the study point of view, I don't think there are any implications. Clearly, if you're a patient and you've got the options being reduced, it, 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 it you know it feels very difficult because you you know you've had treatments which were there but they aren't. Um, the only thing I can say is, look, um, the people who are making these decisions, they um, they often have a lot of very detailed information about it. Sometimes we agree with them, sometimes we don't, and this is a really hard thing, and. Um, what I'd say is that um, the COVID thing's not gone away. And I think over the course of the next few months, I think we're going to see a change in what's offered. I wouldn't be surprised if there are new molecules being developed, which um, are very much like the Evershell, but are new. And I, I think one of the things we can do is just say, look, treatments come and go. We've seen this with waves of, 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 of different waves of the virus. Um, and I don't think this is over yet. So I think the main thing to say is, look, the, the rapid protection study will be going on. We'll find out what we find and we're hoping to learn from that. And then things will get better in time. Although I appreciate that's not an answer which resolves the unmet need right now. Well, here's another one. Gosh, you are so lucky, Mark, that you're the person that's filled all these uh, requests today. But here's one from Miranda Scanlon. Uh, she says, why are kidney and liver transplant recipients but not heart or lung transplant recipients included in the trial? I don't think we've actually excluded um, patients with heart or lung transplants. So I think this is just what's written here. So I think um, I, I need to confirm that. Okay, off the top of my head, but I don't think that I don't think heart and lung transplants are excluded. Okay. There are quite a few people saying, Mark, uh, they would really love to know that there would be opportunities for other universities to help extend either this trial or trials like it. What's the likelihood of that happening? Um, so this trial won't be extended to other sites, or at least it might it might go to one other site. I, I think the um, I think it's important to remember this is a this is a small study. Okay, this isn't this isn't a massive study, and we've unfortunately opened at a time of a sort of maximum demand, if you like. So this wasn't quite what we we're expecting, and the study is designed to answer quite a specific question. I think there will be other studies coming, all right, which are similar to to this with other medicines in them, okay? So I think it's important to say that I wouldn't want people to think that this is gonna be a one-time deal. I suspect there'll be new things coming and that's one of the things to be aware of. And I think, um, Leonard, I think that's all I'm gonna say about, about this at the moment. Leonard? Um, yeah, I, I think Mark's done, a, Mark Tussle's done an amazing job in terms of setting the scene and saying that this is important and just delivering an unmet need here too. Um, get the drugs out of there and I think I wish the rapid protection team all the best luck because Cardiff have put resources there um, and also all these sites putting nurses and stepping things up very quickly and I, I hope they're very successful and get the number of people really quickly but also get the opportunity to bring in more new things because I think as one of the points that people picked up on is that the vaccines stop working after a while um, or they become less effective and so might this form of immunization antibodies and therefore that the future here is that the next lot and the next lot and making sure that you've got something there and 
rapid protection are, are leading this space and, and it's a UK it's 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 run from Cardiff which is great yeah and yeah I think you've put in some questions here as well and I don't forget time for that Peter Taylor asked if you can join if you've recently had COVID hmm? what's the situation uh, you can if you had recently had COVID okay but you um I think it's 28 days or it's three months I can't remember the cutoff I'm sorry I don't know there's quite a long list of eligibility criteria which have changed somewhat over the course of the last we haven't excluded people who just had COVID um completely and Mark, you know, probably to wind up because you have fielded so many questions and then we'll just go around the, the houses and see how everybody feels about that. Um, when are you hoping to report back the findings? When shall we know what the results of all this labour are? So the, the sort of the study will recruit patients over about a year. Um, we'll probably have some interim results in about six months time, depending very much on the analysis which goes on in Oxford. So um, it depends a little bit how um, it depends a little bit how long it takes. It depends a little bit how quickly the analysis gets done. I think it's really important to note that one of the disappointing things about this study might be is that we'll get the results of the analysis after um, after sort of when we're in a new wave of COVID, when Evershield may not be relevant. And the main question we'll have answered is: Can you fill in the gaps with vaccination between um, antibody treatments? So it's going to take a little bit of time. However, the results are going to be really, really important because um, yeah, the people who are vulnerable, say that you know, call it the forgotten 500. Okay, they're still going to be vulnerable in a year's time, and there'll be more vulnerable people because people still won't have responded to vaccines. So the, the concept that we're testing is to say, look, if you do have two monoclonal antibodies or a cocktail of monoclonal antibodies that can prevent an infectious disease, and by the way, COVID, to my knowledge, is the first antibody treatment. I think there's another one for colds as well, which has shown that you can give people passive, if you like, immunity. If we can show that vaccinations can fill in the gaps um, in between the antibodies, then that's a really powerful message for the future because it means if you are very vulnerable, um, and a new vaccine comes along, you can fill in the gaps in your immunity using it. That's what we hope to show. Um, so it's going to take a little bit of time, but it will be important when the results come out. Right. I, I just want to touch on uh, BQ1 variant and uh, maybe ask Mark, Nicola, Patrick, what they think about it. And, and Leonard, you'd like to jump in with that as well, wouldn't you? Well, Leonard needs to answer that question, I think. That definitely, that's <laughs> a definitely Leonard, that's a Leonard question, please. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so this is a, this has been coming up quite a lot, hasn't it? And Mark and Nicola and myself have been fielding questions about this. So the background to this is that variants are popping up like every two or three weeks or even every month at the moment. And, and, and just like where we were six months ago when Evishell was first approved back in March, people worried about the Omicron variant. And you've obviously had all the different variants along the way, 4 and 5, 2.75. And this is another one that's come up. Um, there is a few studies which are showing that Evisheld isn't neutralizing very well in terms of the lab experiment. And I think we just need to be aware of that, that with these new variants, that they are evolving around our medications um, and therefore effectiveness may drop. But I guess what we're trying to do here is monitor that, that efficacy. I know this isn't fully going to answer the questions, but there's data coming out of France and America, which will be able to say what, what the efficacy is. And, and the question that we're all worrying about is, I guess the question you think about is, is, is it worth filling in the gaps and taking some protection or not filling the gaps at all and leave the, leave the gaps firmly there? Um, and I think that's the crux of the matter here. Is the cup half full or half empty? Um, and so I think that's what we're probably saying. I think that the issue is probably wider, actually, because 
um, that the virus is evading vaccines too, and they're also eroding in efficacy there too. Um, one of the, the things that the patient leads are calling for, Nick and Mark, is equality, the same level of protection. Um, and I think that's one of the key points there. Um, but maybe Nick might want to come on that. I think it's exactly as you, you say, Leonard, you know, it, it's about having that same protection, isn't it? And the vaccines, we don't know how they're going to form against the new variants. So it, it's this, the same marker, really, isn't it? And, and I guess the other thing is that if you get access, so we're filling the cracks, we agree to fill in the cracks because we all agree that they, we can see the cracks. It does make it a lot easier in terms of making sure that the next product can come through and the next one too. So I guess it's that principle that we will protect immunocompromised people. We will give you equality of protection um, by hook or by crook. And, and this all comes back to what amazing people around the country are doing, um, like Rapid Protection and Mark Tutter, which is getting access available. And also the people who have tried to make it available in a more reasonable fashion through private provisions too. But um, it's, 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 it's another form of protection. Absolutely. And I just want to say a, bit, a big round of applause to people like Mark Tuttle who are getting up and doing something about this. This is an amazing science. And Mark, it must be, I mean, it's its a blessing and a curse, isn't it? Because, wow, what fascinating times to be working in the line of business that you're doing just now. You know, yes. Sort of work. Yes. I mean, I think, look, the... Um, it, it, uh, I think it's both fortunate and unfortunate we're launching the study at the same at this particular juncture. So I think, look, all of us were hoping that the pandemic would have largely fizzled by now, and that with a sort of collective wave of immunity, we'd have, you know, the virus would be very much dormant, um, or at least not not a big thing. But it, it's it, it's it's great to be involved in the study. The only really disappointing thing is it, this is still so controversial, um, I, and I and I think that's the bit about it because when whenever when the efficacy data came out, and I thought, well, that's fine. Um, actually, loads of people are using it. Why aren't the UK just buying it and giving it? And I thought, well, the study will become irrelevant because everyone would have had it. Mm. And it's so that that's the challenge. That being said, um, this is part of the future, and I think what we'll be doing and other people will be doing as well, and other investigators are doing is they're working out how we can develop this class of therapies going forward, so that you know, say in a year's time or two years' time, we hope there'll be a better panel of antibodies which can also prevent COVID and probably other infectious diseases as well. I think we'll draw it to a close there, guys. There's been uh, so many questions and thank you. Thank you so much, Mark, for being patient and going through them all. And thanks to the panel as ever. Um, we, we want you to keep involved with this campaign. We have a call to action. We want you to keep pestering, I would say, your political representatives. They need to know this, this work is being done and science is an imperfect thing, but it's better than nothing. And we're filling the gaps, we're plugging the, the gaps and we're trying to keep up and keep everyone co covered. We're trying to make sure that everybody has the same right for protection against COVID free if we can. So in order to do that, you need to play your part. You need to start to write your letters, make your videos, make your calls, become an absolute nuisance of your MPs. Uh, I know this is completely counterintuitive for many people that have contacted me and said how difficult it is to actually put the highlight on your own illness and yourself. But actually, the problem is if you don't do that, they won't see your story and they won't see the human being behind the stats. 
So we need to work out a way of doing that. Maybe in the next session, we'll talk a little bit more about that patient and MP engagement. I was rather hoping to have somebody on today, but um, unfortunately, Kaylee, I hope you're feeling better, but she wasn't feeling too good today after chemo. We'll sort this out for the coming weeks. And while we're talking about coming weeks, next week we're skipping because I think Leonard is busy working somewhere and I've got to go somewhere. So we will not be with you next week. I hope Twitter has sorted itself out. But if not, can I just say to you, the week after next, or now, head over to Facebook and uh, look out Evishel UK, their page, and put your contacts on that so that we can re-establish contact if we do lose the Twitter Spaces platform. Uh, you know what's going on just now with Elon Musk. He's making his mind up about what happens in the future. We just want to make sure that we keep all the people that have followed us in this journey so far tight. And we're all part of the same cohort when we re-establish either back in Twitter Spaces in a couple of weeks' time or on some other platform. So please do get in touch. Evershell UK Facebook. Is that all right, Nicola and Mark? Are you nodding? Thank goodness. Or Mark, you want to jump in? I was just going to say, yeah, I mean, if they just join the page and we'll keep them updated rather than coming on the page and putting all their details on, etc. There you go. Join the page and we will keep you updated about what's going on. And you can, of course, hear all this again on the podcast, uh, which is Ripples, which is on the platforms that you'll get all the other podcasts. But until the next time, definitely not next week, but for sure the week after. Thank you so much to the panel, especially to Mark Tuttle. Uh, I want you all to stay safe, keep focused and healthy and strong. Bye for now. Thank you.